Hello and welcome to the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. My guest today is the celebrated clothing designer Margaret Howell, whose remarkable career spans more than half a century. Margaret's clothes embody many of the values of modernism, with a focus on craftsmanship, materiality, longevity and a connection to landscape. Her updated versions of traditional workwear seem unmistakably British, which of course makes them spectacularly popular in Japan in particular, where she has well over a hundred stores. I've come to meet her in her shop in central London to find out more about her approach to design, her love of the Suffolk countryside and the buildings that have most inspired her. Before we get going, a quick reminder that my new book, A Modern Way to Live, has just been published by Penguin and is available online and in most bookshops. It's my personal perspective on the most beautiful houses that have passed through the hallowed halls of the modern house over the past 16 years or so, alongside my childhood experiences of home and the things I learned about design as a writer at the World of Interiors. It deals with universal themes like space, light and decoration, Um, So hopefully it's a nice thing to lob into a loved one's Christmas stocking alongside a plump tangerine and a couple of walnuts. Okay, on with the podcast and happy listening. So Margaret, it'd be really good just to start with just painting a bit of a picture about where we are for people. So could you just explain where we're doing this? Mm -hmm. Well, from the top floor in Wigmore Street. And Wigmore Street being your shop? The company's shop, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. okay, yeah. I, I never think of it as mine. That's interesting, entirely. yeah. How long have you had this shop for? Since 2001 or two. Long time. The first, one of the first times I came here was for an exhibition opening that you had of a photography exhibition of an architect called John Penn, yeah. who's from Suffolk. And I thought it was fascinating because, you know, you've got this shop filled with clothes and yet you decided to put on this exhibition by, you know, frankly, pretty obscure British architect. Obviously, we'll come on to your links with Suffolk later on, but out of interest, why did you do that? Why did you put on a show like that in this space? Well, moving to Wigmore Street was because the company was finally very well managed and we were expanding. Yeah. We'd had smaller shops in um, Knightsbridge and the West End, And when we moved here, my role was sort of more becoming design director of a group of designers, a couple of designers. And that was why ultimately this this sort of large open shop lent itself to what I thought could be other, my other interests outside of the clothes. Okay. And also, I'd started collecting um, the odd piece of Urkel furniture. Yeah. So... It was also at the time when retail, a lot of retail shops were becoming more lifestyle. And so that's how this sort of rather strange place, once we had opened it up, I I thought maybe a great big long shop would be rather intimidating Mm. to customers, but it wasn't because we revealed the lovely wooden floor, which I think makes a big difference, Mm. the skylight, the light in the shop. It had that feeling of a or a suggestion of a gallery, I suppose, with these odd... Sh- because th- th- there were lots of little rooms off for certain areas of our work. 
so we we ended up with just one long rail for the clothes yeah and then one long counter which we thought well that would be good for the books and so on and and it, it became a sort of our little world really i suppose yeah do you see your clothes being linked to the architecture world in some way i didn't i i never have thought about them in that way i just yeah. sort of involved in, in the piece of clothing or the concept i have for a piece of clothing how it's made where to get it made etc you seen i mean you mentioned urkel there you've always had urkel in the shop you've always had david meller as well i think or often do how do they relate well, to what you do urkel was the first thing yeah because literally i used to collect odd bits on the way into work when we were working at battersea okay and this idea of other areas of design, I asked Joe Barber, who I knew from Greenwich Market, yeah. who was a sort of collector of various bits and pieces, if she would like to sort of work on that side of things with me. And that's how the Urkel came about. Mm. And ultimately it led to a collaboration with Urkel in the present day, you know. Yeah. My mother <laughs> I think it was the only thing she gave me when I left home was it was this um, kitchen chair and I had it in our very very first workroom which was our bedroom in in the flat in Shrewsbury Road in Blackheath and it became known as Doris's chair because she was my first employee indoor employee to finish the shirts that I was making at that time okay so she would sit on there, and, and it's still got the sort of string marks of her little cushion she made for the back. That's great. <laughs> so, I mean, there's obviously Urkel is incredibly English or British somehow. Well, yes, my parents had later versions, actually, and I've now got those round at Urkel table in Suffolk, yeah. Have you? Okay. Mm. What is it about them, then, that appeals to you? The fact that they are simple, mm. well-made, and a sort of history, really, of sort of family having it. And, and I think what appeals to me mainly is the way they're made yeah. and, uh, and the wood itself Yeah. in the original versions. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I was curious, have you ever thought about doing your own homeware? No. Why not? <laughs> because I suppose I'm so involved in... The clothes. You've got enough to begin on with. You and mean? then, yes, yes. <laughs> and then what with these other offshoots? I did think, actually, because as the company grows and you do employ designers, that it would be a nice setting yeah. for the clothes. Yeah. Well, we did start to bring in all sorts of lifestyle things, really. Yeah. But you see that as it's almost an autobiographical attempt to sort of reference points for people. It's always been very, a very personal yeah that's all I can do is something that I feel for or, yeah. or it's always been that personal approach to anything yeah. especially yeah. the clothing yeah they often would start with perhaps I always sort of have referred to my father's old Mac hanging in the garage and, and his gardening shirts that were you know he used to come in and say goodnight and read us stories in his sort of shirts were soft and they smelled of bonfire smoke, things like that. You know, it's those sort of evocative things. And then if I see someone on the street in something that looks good, you know, you sort of 
get ideas that way and that sort of thing. So what's your design process then? What happens with your blank sheet of paper? I used to put on music, I remember, and sat there in the very early days. I thought, well, what do I want to wear? Yeah. Or it would be from some sort of social history book, usually, you know, photographs or exhibitions of okay. photographic exhibitions of people wearing their clothes. Okay, and what are you looking at their shape? It's too hard to say really because yeah. it could be a detail, it could be a even something that wasn't actually there. It's, it, the light of the photograph made it look like something. So it's okay. it's suggestive, it suggests things. Yeah. But the other thing that I always was inspired by was the make of things. You know, going to loads of jumble sales and finding these older things, or whether they're a leather bag or a pair of shoes or the famous shirt that was so well made and that I wanted to achieve that perfection of make. So you mentioned your, your parents. I'd, I'd love to just find out a little bit more about the environment you grew up in. So what was your family home like and where, where was it? Mm. I was actually born in Tadworth in a house that they moved into when they got married. So it was newly built in the late 30s, I suppose. Very ordinary, very small, three-bedroom, mm. but a great big garden. Mm-hmm. And my parents were the sort that loved to take us to Cornwall for holidays or the south coast, but it was the Cornish ones that I remember because they liked unpopulated places, they loved walking. So we had an outdoor sort of existence, which was nice. Yeah. Always stayed in self catering things, never a hotel. And they loved gardening. I sort of really appreciate now the way we were brought up with with that sort of lifestyle, yes. Did you appreciate it less at the time? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that you even think about appreciating anything when you're young. (laughs) Okay, but it sounds very sort of simple and... and, and Very simple, I would say. Yes, and they would... A bit later on, when when I... More as a teenager, I remember if they needed to buy something, they would invest in it, because they didn't, you know, they weren't wealthy or anything, but they would buy good quality, you see, they would buy Urkel, they would buy Anglepoise, and of course Anglepoise was probably our next project. Yeah. And that actually is very satisfying for me now, to feel that I can collaborate with these people. It's the same with the clothing, with Barber and Fred Perry. Mm. They were people one looked to for the sort of make and the style in Mm. some cases but it was great to go to their archives and and sort of renovate a certain thing and and to be working with those specialist manufacturers yeah so from your as you described it perfectly normal upbringing you know going to the English seaside for your holidays how did you get into fashion how did that become your thing I've never regarded it particularly as fashion no. I was just making. Yeah. <laughs> um, and producing and taking it to a shop to sell. But I probably got there through... Well, we always made our own clothes as teenagers. And my middle sister, she went to Goldsmiths. So I followed in her footsteps. And when she left Goldsmiths, she'd got quite interested in fabric printing. And she set herself up in her flat to print scarves and but she went out to teach to earn money so I used to go and print her scarves for her and things and it was sort of thinking well 
by the time I got to the end of art school, you know, what do you do? And you look for a job that's somehow connected creatively with something, but couldn't find it. And I thought, well, I could start making things. And that's how I followed in her footsteps, really. And so what was the first thing you made? These papier-mâché beads. I, okay. I, I sort of soaked the newspaper and then wound it round a knitting needle and, uh, and then made a little rack with strings and dried them and then hand-painted them and then bought sort of wooden beads or other beads from a shop in London and made what was fashion... Well, fashion, you see. Fashionable at the time. Yeah. It was a, a chokers and so I made those. I went with my sister because she was showing somebody in Vogue her scarves and, and I took my beads along and, and they picked those up and they photographed them and things like that. So it encouraged me to take them to these small boutiques as they were in London then. Okay, and then how did you get from, from be- there beads to clothes? To clothes. I was aware that these little accessories that I was doing, I, it was more than just bees, it went on to little knitted things and that sort of thing, and I wasn't getting so satisfied by that. I wanted to get my teeth into something mm-hmm. that was more permanent, and, you know, making the shirt, hunting out an equivalent quality, and that led me up to the north of the country and, and finding beautiful quality shirting, and I was always it seemed on the um, edge of something being discontinued (laughs) (laughs) because I liked the older feel to it but then I put it into the shape that felt more right to wear now you know that's okay so for a long time it was just making men's and and women's shirts Mm -hmm. women's shirts were hard to sell then they wanted something prettier so I, I concentrated on the men's but then the turning point came where women wanted the men's styles. But there was the raincoat, there was the linen jacket, all things that I would like to wear. Okay. So it was the beginning of more androgynous yeah. style. Which is still what it is today, all these years later, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Do you intend your clothes to be worn by both men and women, and would you quite like it if they shared them and swapped them? <laughs> Uh, well, you can't exactly do that because yeah, the, the, cuts, the cuts are different, the fabric weights are different, but on the whole, that is my style, I think. Yeah, yeah. sort of unstructured maybe in a way. Well, definitely not too, not too stiff formal. and upright and formal. Yeah. Yes, I mean, this all goes back to one's upbringing, I'm sure, because of a love of the countryside and the textures and the feel of fabric and the feel when you're wearing something you know you don't want to be all buttoned up and often it's always a problem to go to something something where you're meant to be smart you know for me um (laughs) well you're you're you're, you're wearing jeans and a and a a polo neck today is that your your normal (laughs) attire i mean i think these days i rarely wear a skirt yeah um but yeah i mean wearing jeans and i mean going to art school and you're you're always comfortable and you're dashing around. If you're active, yeah. how can you yeah. go around in very high heels and things? Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think there is something, though. I did once, when I was a teenager, get a pair of little heeled shoes, but they were very low and very modest. You know, they, they weren't at all high. <laughs> how did you feel in those, then? Well, I probably didn't like it much. 
I'm sure I read that Jack Nicholson was obsessed with, with one of your corduroy jackets. Well, I don't know about obsessed, but I mean, he was a customer in, of this shop in Los Angeles that I, because I exported quite a bit to America in the early days. But it turned out that I got the letter from the film director, Stanley Kubrick, yeah. asking for about a dozen of these to be made because they probably got trashed a bit or blood on them or something. And this was for The Shining, wasn't it? So he's yeah. wearing it in The Shining. Mm. All the way through. Exactly. <laughs> it's nice to have that on, on film. It's really nice, isn't it? Yeah. So you do have this following. I mean, Jack Nicholson's an example in a way. You're so sort of understated, but yet you have this following that's endured for 50 years and more. Why has it endured for so long, do you think? I'm sure there are other people out there like me that have a certain sort of idea of what they want to wear and how, you know, the not high fashion statements, you know, I think you have to be quite extrovert really sometimes to be like that or very young or whatever. The quality, I, I think there is this thing of something feels very comfortable and you get a lot of use out of it, you'll want to have something similar. I don't know because I don't really think about that sort of thing. <laughs> you not? You just you just do what um, comes instinctively to you. I did, yes, yeah. and, and I do. Can you just give us a sense of the scale of the company now? I mean, obviously, from starting out all that time ago, it's it's become quite a big thing. How many shops do you have, and how many employees do you have? I think you'll have to ask somebody else that because <laughs> I don't carry those sort of figures, and I'm not really. I'm obviously proud of our company. I think it's it's been so well run and I've been very lucky that both the man in Japan and the Richard Craig our managing director now have let me be personal about what I do and let me work the way I do Mm. and that's amazing because I couldn't have grown a a company a business. Have you stuck to the design side all the way through has that really been your focus? Yes yeah. But that runs through the whole, the decoration of shops. Yeah. You know, I like to collaborate with the architect on certain things. Would you describe yourself as a shy person? Yes. Yes, okay, <laughs> so that's interesting. Because you've actually, you've got, you know, as a shy person, you've, you've put yourself out there, you've got, a, you've got a name, people know what you do, you know, your, your name itself is, is on everything. How does that sit with you? Are you able to kind of make peace with that? How have you found it over the years? I think the only thing I found was when I travelled on the tube one day and there was somebody wearing my clothes and, and a Margaret Howe bag or something and and I thought, oh, <laughs> I felt very self-conscious and, um, because of, you know, wearing my shabby old clothes and then couldn't wait for my stop. But um, <laughs> it's nice to see the bags. Fab, let's move on to your first choice of building, um, which is Red House in Bexley Heath, which was built by Philip Webb for William Morris in 1859. Uh, William Morris, of course, was the arts and crafts movement. Tell us about why you've chosen it. I go by train sometimes if, if I've visited it and walk the streets and full of sort of suburban houses, and then you stumble upon this one wonderful gem. Yeah. Um, But of course, when it was built, it was in the sort of countryside and it was a large orchard that they purchased. But the reason is that it's such an interesting one to visit now. And what impressed me the first time I went there were the materials used. They Mm. were all 
beautiful sort of old thick terracotta tiles that get this lovely patina of age and the wood, dark wood, wood everywhere and the cast iron handles and hinges and so much is handcrafted and even the brickwork on the outside, everything purpose made for that one house and you know it's quite magical really and a little bit whimsical. Yeah. And the well in the garden, for instance. And when you look up, there's a weather vane on the roof and it's got his initials built into it, you know. Mm. So very, very creative. Mm. You could imagine living there in a way. And, and then the garden, the old orchard. The, there's still trees that look like the original, really old trunks of apple trees, really lovely. Yeah. And then it was quite a creative hub of people that lived there and shared it. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he lived there with some of the pre-Raphaelites, didn't he? Always yes. They, they contributed to it, didn't they? Yes. And even the architect was a friend of his, so it, yeah. they would have worked together. Yeah. It was really the use of all those materials, I think. Mm. There's a sort of comfort to it, and it's something that you don't come across so much now. Yeah. At all, everything is very smooth and perfectly produced, and so on. Yeah, exactly. Materials that are allowed to age. Mm. And I went through a phase of really loving um, William Morris, and I had his willow pattern in um, a flat we had when I had my first child. So his sort of connection with those fabric patterns and wallpapers and things that. I used to go to quite a lot of National Trust houses yeah. as well. Yeah, you mentioned the red brick on the outside. Mm. It's Obviously it's called the Red House for obvious reasons because of the red brick, but what was interesting about that at the time was that every other house pretty much was rendered and stuccoed and you know looked a bit like a painted wedding cake. Ah. Whereas this mm. one, you know, they, they left the bare brick mm. on show. So very new. <laughs> exactly, and this is the thing, and, 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 and internally they allowed it to structurally be on show and, and so you could see how it was put together. So I suppose I wasn't surprised in the way that you chose this because I think it's sort of all about that truth to materials thing, which I think you also carry through into your mm. work, don't you think? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, I think it was after thinking which houses to choose that I realised that, well, they've all got lovely wood in them. Yeah. And it was the same here, wasn't it, when I was saying about the shop? Yeah. Because it was hit and miss whether it was a lovely wooden floor underneath (laughs) and whether the skylight existed. And um, it was those things that I think helped make this more of a sort of welcoming place to come to. Yeah. Because at the time, it was sort of a lot of chrome and black furniture and very, very smart big shops. Yeah. Whereas I wanted this to... You know, Wigmore Street to feel more sort of homely. Yeah, yeah. So, where, out of interest, where do you get your furniture and objects from for home and things like that? Oh, uh, usually second-hand, you know, places. Or I haven't bought furniture for ages. Yeah. Well, this table was the first one my partner and I bought when we moved to our flat. It was Castiglione, wasn't it, the designer? And uh, anyway, it goes up and down. It's it, on the trestles, 
so I could have it up high because I used to stand and make my shirt patterns. Okay. And then lower it in the evening for dinner. So it's obviously important to you this idea that things endure and that they stay with you. I mean, well, the things I bought like this, yeah. and there's a uh, Corbusier chaise long, other pieces of those, you know, Marcel Brewer chair, those classics. Mm. Mm. I never have tired of them. Yeah, because they're well made and, and beautiful. Mm. You know, it's quite simple. And they do the job. They do. They do the job. Yeah, nicely fair. But William, it was William Morris who famously said, didn't he, that you know you should have nothing mm. in your home that isn't mm. you know beautiful and functional. Yes. And that's that's that, what you're describing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And that's what the Red House is as well, in a way. Yeah. There was a big drawback. Well, yes, except that today, you know, maybe it's a little bit fanciful, you know, for. What do you think? There is one room there, though, that has windows all round, so it it, it has more light and. The architect that lived there more recently, he put some nice ply sliding cupboards around this room and it's surprising how it works with the existing room. Yeah. There's no real conflict, it's just a nice modern addition. Yeah. Well, it would have been in the 60s or something. And he used it as his study. Yeah. And it it, it really was an attractive room and the yeah. combination works. Yeah. So. Something that's purpose-built in the right material and functional Yeah. seems to last. Is it possibly a bit too decorative for your liking then, you think? The Red House? No, no, I like it because it is all hand, sort of, sort of really craft, yeah. crafted. Genuinely made by yes. hand. Yes. Yeah. And I still, we used to like to embroider, for instance, and... And all these things. I mean, there's still a love of that sort yeah. of thing, and, and pottery, everything. Yeah. Yes, but you're not a great one, though, for sort of surface adornment, though, are you, particularly, do you think? No, not for unnecessary sort of yeah. fanciness. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested by this. Where, where you live, what would be your sort of, what would be a slip-up for you? When Margaret Howland goes a bit rogue, <laughs> what, what is it? What have you got at home that's like that? Well, maybe sometimes it is something from one's parents that one wants to keep. Okay. I like Alto. You like Alto? Yeah, Alto's, got, got Alto's not a slip-up. <laughs> no. <laughs> I like that that's your no. version of a slip-up, though. No. I try not to make slip-ups. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's great. No, I'm sure I've got a few. <laughs> There's a brilliant quote about the Red House. Edward Byrne-Jones called it the beautifulest place on earth. <laughs> um, <laughs> Would you go along with that, do you think? Would you like to live there? Mm, no, not now. Not now. Although I do love the garden. Yeah. And I love apples. It probably would be a little bit dark. And, and I still am attracted to cast iron hooks and things, you know, black. And the, the, it's something that isn't quite perfect. It's got a, almost like a human element because of what, how it's been made by hand. And yeah. You know, that's that's what I like. Exactly. Do you think your clothes get better with age? Some do. Yeah. Well, most, hopefully. And one likes to get fabrics. I suppose that's why I like natural fabrics as well, because yeah. they do change. Yeah. It's fair to say I was one of the sort of first people to 
introduced linen yeah. that creased and it doesn't matter that it creases yeah, right. it looks better if it's good quality in the first place yeah if it's sort of not such a good quality linen then it can look limp yeah there was one major problem with the red house which was that it was built facing north so they want they wanted it to address the watling way which was an ancient pilgrimage route to canterbury um so they they turned it around that way so that it faced north but it it was obviously quite cold oh yes yes i was going to say i bet it was cold (laughs) Mm. so i think it aggravated william morris's chill Mm. a bit and he 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 hot-footed it back to london again (laughs) so he wasn't there for very long Mm. But I think like a lot of these houses, it's sort of a, it's what you've described in a way as kind of manifesto, isn't it? It's a yes. moment in time yes. that you wouldn't necessarily want to live there, but it's, it, you know, we're very pleased it's there. We can learn mm. from it. And, and was it the first time he'd worked on the house then, do you think? Because, you you know, you often make mistakes that you and learn by those. Well, it's classic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that's the thing. If you're, if you're building a house or, or refurbishing a house, it's often the most simple things that get neglected because... In a way, you go through so many decisions, don't you, mm. along the way? And I wonder if it's like that making clothes as well. I mean, I'm sure you don't because you don't slip up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I could imagine where you could actually get all the way full circle, all the way back around again and say, well, hang on a minute, we've, you know, we've got the detail right, but actually you know, the shape in the first place isn't the right thing. Or, you know, and that's sort of what we're talking about here. It's, mm. it's design, isn't it? But I know, I know you would never do that. <laughs> Let's move on to your second one which is really interesting and quite different, which is the concert hall at Snape Maltings in Suffolk, which was converted in the late 1960s by Arab. I must confess, I've never been inside it. I've snooped around Snape and the Maltings, but not, not got to go inside. So tell us about what it's like. Well, again, in the... inside, it's just um, all wood yeah. with a high ceiling. But it's mainly uh, why I chose that, was the whole experience of actually going there to a wonderful live concert and then, you know, with lovely music and then in the interval you can step outside and look out over the Suffolk reed beds yeah. in front and they're all swaying and I don't know, it's just such a privilege really to be able to do that, to go to a, a fairly sort of plain but well acoustic hall and I suppose that sort of story of Benjamin Britten instigating it to yeah. be there and so on. But the whole thing is such a, a wonderful experience for an evening or morning or whenever it is that you go there. So tell us about the context of it then, because what's the landscape like around it? You know, you, I think oh, it's really it's, interesting. It's in what's called the snake maltings and there's lots of these red brick, um, I think they're red brick, yeah. buildings um, from them that were the maltings. Yeah. And, and so was this concert hall. And Benjamin Britten, who lived in Aubra, not yeah. so far away, had the idea of converting it into a concert hall to celebrate the Aubra Music Festival that mm. they'd have every year. What's it like to listen to a concert there? Well, it's lovely, yeah. except... Seats are a little bit um, uncomfortable. Utilitarian. Yeah, so you see a lot of people bringing cushions. Yeah, because they're the original cane chairs. Yes, and they they slip a bit if you're sitting on them. Okay. Or something isn't quite right. Imogen Hulse said something about the chairs, I found. Did she? She she said they were designed to make people sit properly. 
Ah, sit upright. <laughs> yeah, so you're not sitting upright enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they're made in Ipswich and they're very beautiful cane chairs, but I, I can understand yeah. you wouldn't necessarily want to sit on them for a couple of hours. Yeah, but you, you can't move them, can you? They're fixed no, they're, seats, yeah, they're fixed but they're, they're cane. <laughs> but yeah, to, acoustically, it's very heavily lauded because um, Derek Sugden from Arab did the acoustics. Yeah. Um, he's a lovely chap, actually. I met him a number of years ago. And the idea was that Benjamin Britten really liked the acoustics that you get in the churches in Suffolk, mm. so Orford and Blythe were mm. in particular. Well, they often have very uncomfortable pews, yeah, don't right. they? Same, so, same I mean, experience. I think, I think if you're going for the music, you just have to accept that. You have to accept it, exactly. So it's a very pew-like <laughs> experience. But, but Benjamin Britten specifically wanted this long reverberation from the sound, so Derek Sugden was tasked with creating that. And they decided that 45 degrees as a pitch on the roof was the perfect pitch to be able to create this reverberation. So um, it became known as the snake roof. And I'm just interested to hear what it's like because it's meant to be a very, a very beautiful thing to sit there and listen to music in that building. And I love, I love what you talk about how also in the interval you go out and then you interact mm. with the landscape around it. Do they feel, how contextual does it feel? And what, what is the landscape like? What do you see? It's very flat, but open. So you see big sky and these lovely reed beds mm. that just sort of, there's always a breeze usually, and they move very rhythmically. Mm. That's all you see really from outside. Very Suffolk. Mm. You've got a personal love of Suffolk, haven't you? What, what is it about Suffolk for you that attracts you to it? It's actually where I first took my children on holiday to a cottage. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it because it was fairly undiscovered then and since um, lockdown it's become a bit okay. populated. But it's very flat and where I've got a house it's on a lane that leads half a mile down the road to the sea. Mm. The agricultural fields run right nearly to the sea yeah. and it's a very working arable land and I like that. The mm. fact that it's very real, crops mm. change, and you get such big skies, lovely light. You're just aware of the sea and the sky and the land and the sort of long perspectives, really, of paths. Mm. And wildlife, you know, hares, swans on the some flooded fields, and it's just hasn't changed for a long time yeah and and it's a working area yeah i like it it's active but then i just love walking anyway so do you prefer that landscape to the rolling hills that you get elsewhere no i love the um, south downs my parents often we had relatives that lived on the south downs Mm. they were a funny lot they were they were my great aunts and great uncle who lived in this old nissen hut Oh, wow. That's another building. <laughs> Not really. But it was full of, you know, sort of, the thing I remember was a pianola and, uh, and a great big um, cupboard full of Victoriana because they were, you know, our great aunts in, in about the 19, late 1940s. Okay. No, but the Downs, I love. Mm. They're another minimal sort of very graphic sort of open space and shapes and yeah. if you see a tree on the downs it's it, it looks beautiful because it's the only one there or 
uh, you get the lovely clumps of trees and tracks. I love tracks. Yeah. So in Suffolk, you get these lovely sort of golden sandy tracks mm. that the tractors go up and down in. But on the chalk downs, it's the, the white ones. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a, something that's been worn. <laughs> yeah. And goes down honest. through time. Mm. Yeah, honesty, exactly. Mm. The patinated. Mm. And, yeah. It's, as you're describing it, it sounds like a Revillius painting or something. To yeah. Me. It, and of course, one loves his work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, Su- Suffolk, it, it seems to me as well, it's a community there, isn't there, of actually very creative people as well. Do you, do you find that? Do you know a lot in, of people locally? In Suffolk? Yeah. Yes. Well, you see, I think that happens if you've got a fairly quiet and, and close to nature place. So you think people are sort of retreating there and that's allowing their creativity to take hold somehow? Well, I've got made quite a few contacts there that are sort of more artistic. And, yeah, yeah, same. Light, you see, and, and the, the changes that brings to colour. Has the landscape there inspired your clothing? Subliminally, maybe. <laughs> Colours, maybe, yeah. subliminally. I think... You know, if you're inspired, you're stimulated. So therefore, perhaps it just helps your brain think a little bit more. It inspires other things like, you know, an idea for a photo shoot, you know, in lockdown when I just used the sort of paths and the old farm equipment that was left to rot and things like that to hang clothes on. I think looking back, what has been the biggest influence is this sort of natural quality of things that I experienced as, as a very young child growing up yeah. with, through my family's lifestyle. Yeah. Getting back to Snape, um, Hayworth Tompkins have also done some work there on some of the buildings and they also they built a lovely little studio called the Dovecut Studio. Oh, yes. Is uh, it? Is it? It's not the rusty building. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Isn't it brilliant? Yes. Yes. So it's 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 basically a, a sort of tumble down Victorian dovecot um, that they then inserted a Corten steel modern structure with a steeply pitched roof mm. inside it, mm. and it's just a little folly, isn't it? But it's a lovely, lovely thing. Yes. Much photographed. It's uh, I, I love it. <laughs> but it it contributes to the whole site, doesn't it? Quite a lot. Oh, I just I just loved it when it went up. Yes. Yeah. What do you like about it, out of interest? Uh, the colour. Um, yeah. The fact that it was small, like a little shed. Yeah. I haven't been in it, of course. I think it's lined with plywood inside. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think on the last bit of my life, I think I'd like to live in something like that. Would you? <laughs> Quite small. Would you? <laughs> Manageable, yeah. That's interesting. Um, a shed would be. Mm. A shed. Mm. Very good. Let's move on to your third and final one which is also in Suffolk mm. uh, which is called Martello Tower Y and it's a 19th century coastal fort uh, Martello Tower that was converted into a house by Piercy and Company with Billings Jackson Design in 2010 interestingly it's a house we sold a couple of times through the modern house um, <laughs> it must be close to where you live yeah. where you have your house isn't it yes yeah so have, have you been inside yes um, well Yes, I mean, these towers go all along the coast, every mile or half mile, to Alborough. I think that's the last one there. And I think there's only one left that hasn't been converted. Right. But this one, Duncan Jackson did the work on it, and I was out 
walking one evening and, and he invited me in to see and I wouldn't call it um, a house or a home myself yeah. but I went to the top <laughs> floor and it is a real experience because I think he was inspired to actually be very radical and have a raised roof that's like a, a very um, shallow dome in a way. Yes, it's almost like it's sort of popping it, the lid it off floats. a jar. Yes, 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 that's right. And I think that was inspirational because it gives a 360 degree view. Mm. The sea on one side mm. and the land on the other. Mm. And when you go into this upper floor, it was the kitchen and dining area. And actually, I mean, it'd be big enough as a whole living room and, and everything else. But everything had to be custom made and it was done in beautiful wood all round the edge in the kitchen and everything and it's just inspiring somehow the light up there and and looking out and you'd get the sort of moon rising over the sea and mm. the sun setting the other side and i did think too the windows from the outside look very small but when you're in and you look through one of these windows, they frame the farm tracks or footpath as okay. well. And you get these lovely long perspectives of lines and the flat fields and things. And He lived there for a short while, but I, I think his work took him elsewhere. But it's now let for holidays. Yeah. And I think the experience that groups have when yeah. they go there must be lovely and, and probably turn them on to modern architecture yeah what a place to go you know, for a weekend yeah. yes i didn't sort of feel the downstairs was so satisfactory with dark it's yeah. rather cell like yeah so how, how have they brought light in down below they've got sort of light wells haven't they yes and i think um the extrusions from the wall that he took out to make the light i mean the walls were like 15 foot thick and they're left there on the ground now as a memento. Yeah. <laughs> but also on the outside, he had to construct a staircase to get up, even to get in on the middle floor. Yeah. And that, again, is very industrial looking. Yeah. Nice metal, you know, well, steel. Yeah. And very in keeping, really, I think, with the tractors going by and all the other sort of mechanics going on in the fields and I think he did a really good conversion there. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like a home to you? Not to me, no. no. Why is that? Because downstairs it's very dark. Very cellular downstairs, and, yeah. And also it's too enormous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but as an experience to go and stay in for a bit and things must be great fun, especially with a group of people and, and you can go out on the gun emplacement yeah. and sort of have your drinks mm. and look at the sea and, and and you know there are things you know that happen like the harvest moon time and things okay. like that where to see things like that is quite spiritual too really. yeah does the sea get quite wild there yes, <laughs> yes it does it's very <clears throat> strong currents right so um, that must be quite interesting to be in there on a wild day well, in the sea. Well, no, in, in the Martello Tower. Oh, yes, yes. Probably have to get round and clean the windows. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I thought you meant swimming, because when I go there, I cycle along, and, and that's my patch to swim in front of that tower, because okay. there's less sort of war defences revealed on the beach. It's quite, okay. um, it's quite a sort of um, brutal area, really, yeah. um, down there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so swimming in the seas, that's one of your favourite things to do? Yes. Yeah. Is it with a wetsuit, or do you go without? Without. Oh, wow. And so, therefore... These days it's less time than I used to spend. But when it's calm, it's lovely and, and sort of September time's a good time. Yeah. One of the things we talk about quite a lot on the podcast is this idea of prospect and refuge. So the thinking is that, you know, we grew up in, in on the savannah and we needed to survive by having places that we could see a long way from, i.e. prospect. So, you know, vantage point on top of a hill or something. And then we also needed refuge to hide, so a clump of trees or something like that. And, you know, the theory might be that we feel comfortable in environments that combine that within the home as well. So mm-hmm. although, you you know, you quite rightly described it as quite dark and cellular in terms of the bedrooms lower down, it's actually a really good example, I think, of, of prospect and refuge because you do have this ultimate vantage point, as you say, windows all the way around the mm. top floor, and you really could see the enemy coming from a long way away mm. up there. But you can also retreat further down the building to your to your much more nest or womb-like mm. places. And there's a, there's a snug as well, isn't there, with a fire in it? And, um, Is that on the middle floor? Yeah. Mm. That's probably quite nice. Yeah. I didn't sort of have a good look, and I don't think it was finished or anything like that. Oh, right. Then. Yeah. But I was lucky enough to see that top floor. Yeah. How do you go about furnishing a space like that that's got curved well, walls everywhere? Well, that's it. That's what I said. It had to be all be made. Yeah. So you need the money. Yeah. I read that it's, it's built from almost a million bricks, <laughs> this tower. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. What you've chosen is, is actually a lot of brick and these choices you've made is... is well, it's funny you should say that because yeah. I didn't think about that. But when I revisited the Red House, it is, you know, because you look at it from the outside and all these lovely little round windows and square windows and, and shapes. Yeah. It is. The brickwork becomes quite fascinating anyway. Yeah. But in my mind, it was the wood was in, right. in, in, relevant in all places. Okay. Even here, as I say. Yeah. So wood would be essential for me yeah. in the building. Yeah. yeah. But I suppose both wood and brick are these sort of elemental, yeah. enduring, natural mm. materials, aren't mm. they? Mm. So I think that, that unites them. Mm. Am I right in saying there's a camera obscura in one of the bedrooms? Did you see the camera obscura? Yes, I never quite understood how that worked, but um, yeah. it did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So did you get the landscape on the wall? No, I don't remember it. Okay. I'd rather see it anyway and walk right. in it. Yeah, yeah. I think the other interesting thing about all three choices that you've made is that they're all they're all sort of unadorned in a way. I mean, the, the Red House to an extent, but I think that they're certainly not... They're, they're not decorated, if you know what I mean. I'm just interested in your views on, on colour. Do you feel comfortable living with colour? What kind of colour do you have in your life? Well, I used to have more colour that I was influenced by visiting National Trust properties in the early days. So that would influence my colours indoors, quite soft and muted, I suppose. At the moment, the place I live in in Blackheath is 
just an off-white farrow wall because I had to do it before I had any furniture or any carpets laid. Yeah. And I had nothing to put the colour against. Okay. So I thought, we'll have to do it all this off-white and then yeah. see how I go as I live with it. Okay. That's and I might, might, might put some colour on at some point. Yeah, yeah, what would it be? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it might be just one small patch of a fairly dark colour, I don't know. Not, yeah. not too dark, but I mean, sometimes that works very well. Yeah. And what about your, your place in Suffolk? Could you just describe that, Charles? It's a 1960s house, isn't it? Yeah, no, I've kept that all white because I felt it was 1960s. Yeah. And I've also got the little extension that was built in the 70s by the same architects and they put plywood on the wall, which was very good of them. Yeah. And then I've got wooden slatted lines, so that for me is enough because it's a very simple... Have you seen the houses? I visited one of your neighbours yes. uh, many, many years ago now. Yeah, um, they're great. Because it's great a terrace of six, 60s yeah. houses built at se- as second homes, actually. So yeah. that's why they're nice and modest and simple, with nice gardens on the lane to the sea. Very nice too. Yeah. And what does it give you there that, that you don't get in London? The you, country. The sorry. country, yeah. So you just go there for a complete change of headspace and scene. Yes, and there's never once have I been out for a walk without seeing something that's sort of impressive or amazed me or that's beautiful yeah. or a surprise. And it's, it's to do with the light, the wildlife and... Especially, actually, in lockdown, when it was very, very quiet, yeah. and the wild animals were more abundant, and, you know, I was walking, and a, an owl suddenly flew up, and I could see the big round eyes, you know, it was lovely seeing it close to. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Margaret. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Margaret today, and thank you very much for listening, as always. To find out more about upcoming episodes, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. If you can spare the time to leave us a quick review, it's incredibly helpful because it means other people can find us too. If you're interested in getting some interiors inspiration, there are hundreds of beautiful modern homes on our website, themodernhouse.com, and we also have a sister site, inigo.com, which is full of the best Georgian rectories and Victorian workers' cottages. This episode was produced by Gabriella Jones and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective.